downfield ignorance. How could those fools have locked this knowledge away? Oh, it all makes sense now. Is that sense? Oh, merciful Lord, what have I done? No, no. This is not right. Stupid, stupid mistake. Please, please have mercy on me. What? I was only seeking a better understanding of your perfection. I humble myself before you. <laughs> I think you're mistaking me for someone else. I'm the Doctor. You're listening to Audio Dramatics on Resonance 104.4 FM and DAB in London. I'm Alex Fitch, and this is Resonance's bi-monthly show about audio dramas, original dramatic productions that are broadcast on the radio or released on MP3 and CD. Before my introduction, you heard an extract from an episode of Tales of a Time Lord, a fan-produced, unauthorised version of Doctor Who, which consisted of nine-and-a-bit stories spread over 22 episodes, created between 2016 and the beginning of this year. And in this scene, a Galileo-type character meets the Doctor for the first time. Shortly, you'll hear my interview with the actor playing the Doctor in vocal, who also directs and does the sound design for Tales of a Time Lord, and writer R.R. Molyneux. Later in the show, I'm also talking to another Doctor Who writer, Nigel Fares. Nigel has written several episodes of the licensed version of Doctor Who for Big Finish Productions with members of the original cast, and a variety of other shows for the company, including Blake Seven, Sapphire and Steel, and The Tomorrow People, plus his original story, Shilling and Sixpence Investigate, a pastiche of Agatha Christie starring David Warner and Celia Imry and my interview with Nigel is in the second half of today's show. However, to start off with, I'm talking to the creators of Tales of a Time Lord, a new free audio version of Doctor Who, presenting the character's 20th incarnation, a young man who has been in a thousand years of solitary confinement, and so is only learning again how to be the Doctor, travelling with a companion called Maria Swift, herself recovering from involvement in a civil war. The first episode of Tales of a Time Lord became available to download during a gap in the BBC programme's production when Peter Capaldi took a year off from playing the role and now that Jodie Whittaker is also taking a year's hiatus between episodes it's an ideal time to listen to this new fan production which tells a tale from the Doctor's far future. Eagle-eared listeners might notice that I've censored a word said by writer R.R. Molyneux halfway through the interview so as to prevent a spoiler of a classic character from Doctor Who coming back as an antagonist in this new series. I'm talking to Invocal and R.R. Molyneux about Tales of a Time Lord. Invocal is the star and director and of music and special effects and mixing, etc., etc. R.R. is the writer. Invocal was telling me before I started recording that the two of you met in the Brighton music scene, but it's one thing writing music and making music and another making an audio version of Doctor Who. How did that come about? Well, I think it came about before I knew anything about it, did it not? It did, yes. He told me once yeah. in, in an interview, I didn't realise this, for <laughs> many, 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 many months of making the show, he told me once that he had me in mind when he started writing it. Ah. So, he just wanted to basically just abuse my talents. <laughs> yeah, 
Absolutely, he's not wrong there. So um, I'll, I'll, I'll let you answer the, um, that one. The, the pilot script, which ended up turning into our first story, Teardrop, and pretty much from the start I had um, John in mind to do the acting and stuff, just because I've known him for a very long time. Like he said, we came up in like the music scene together. And he always had just kind of a doctory vibe. Hmm. So oh, he, was, he was kind of the model for the character from the start, so it just made sense to ask him. Mm. Well, not least because uh, throughout the modern era of Doctor Who, there's been a running gag that the Doctor always wants to be ginger. <laughs> so you I found a ginger it. Doctor. I know, we actually managed the first. I'm, I'm the first ginger Doctor, <laughs> I'm the first bald Doctor, <laughs> and I'm the first brummy Doctor. It's three firsts in one, man. Oh, yes. <laughs> not a bad start, you know. I mean, it, it, again, before I started recording, I was saying to um, uh, to John that his performance reminds me most of Christopher Eccleston. In a way, I wonder if that's actually because you were rebelling against the way that Eccleston was on TV and perhaps was doing the version you would have liked to have seen him do. I, I, when I watched Eccleston season, which was um, a couple of seasons after I got into it, because I got into it through the Tenant Kylie Minogue episode, the Christmas mm. special, um, I'd pretty much blocked it out and forgotten about it. I did not enjoy Eccleston's version of The Doctor. I know it's controversial, <laughs> but he, yeah, he's the only one that I really didn't connect with. Whereas Tennant, I had a, a bit of a man crush on. I thought he was superb in the role. <laughs> and Matt Smith, I wasn't really um, impressed with their choice to begin with, but boy, did he get, mm. get, the, get the role, to get to grips with the role. Sorry. I thought he was superb. And by the end of his tenure, I actually liked him as much as I liked Tennant. Um, so I wouldn't say Eccleston influenced me at all, actually. Mm. I think Tennant probably influenced me because mm. he was he was my favourite for a long time. And I think by the time Capaldi came about, I was deliberately avoiding watching the shows until I knew we'd done stories of our own, so I didn't get influenced. By mm. And the more I did the role, the more I just made it my own, I guess. it's like I'm sure actors say that about any role they're in. Um, I, you, know, you, you perform it and you find bits about your performance that you really like and you start duplicating that atmosphere and that energy mm. and eventually it becomes a character of its own. Well, I guess I'm, I'm one thing that you have in common uh, with people like uh, Tennant and Matt Smith is that you've pitched your voice slightly higher for radio so you sound younger than you actually are in real life. But at the same time, and I don't mean that as an insult, um, but at the same time, there is, <laughs> there is this um, world weariness that you bring to the Doctor that he's around the sort of 20th incarnation um, and has been in prison for a thousand years before we meet him at this stage. So it's that youthful energy, but at the same time, you know, centuries of weight upon his shoulders. I think I'm somebody's a, been watching the show. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm a bit. Um, I would a say that there's, there's four doctors that I would say formed the main <clears throat> impetus in terms of creating this doctor on a writing front. Um, and I would say it's it's well, it, it, there's partly it's partly taking influences from various doctors, which ultimately is what every doctor is. Mm. You know, it's trying to go beyond the sum of those parts that makes a, a great doctor great. But with me, the, the kind of main points of influence for me were um, Colin Baker's Doctor mm. and the character arc that he goes into. If you look at his TV stories and his big finish stories, mm. like he starts out as kind of a jerk. And then by the end, he is almost the most compassionate Doctor we've even had if you look at like the big finish ones. And that was kind of the, the arc that I was going for was that this Doctor, he starts out very cold and almost treating everything like a game. Like there's a part in the first story where someone dies and he barely reacts to it mm. because he's looking at it 
as an equation, and the equation is to try and get the most people out alive as possible. And at first, he's under the wrong assumption that to do that, you have to be cold. And him interacting with the companions, Maria and Sita, is what ends up bringing out that real doctor mm. sort of side of it. And without saying any spoilers, that, that's plot relevant, as anyone who's watched it would know, because <laughs> that ends up very much adding up in the final episode. And the other um, elements for me certainly were um, the seventh Doctor, uh, Sylvester McCoy, because I really like in those how the Doctor is more of like a chess master, and mm. the Doctor is always has like five different plans going on at once, and he's spinning a lot of plates. And that's a really strong contrast to a lot of the other versions of the Doctor, where you'll escalate the problem until like the last five minutes of the episode and suddenly the doctor will pull some crazy techno battle solution out of their backside. <laughs> and then you know, it's kind of like a deus ex machina thing and Doctor Who gets forgiven a lot for it, but I think it's a trend that it should kind of stop doing because mm. I think it's ultimately harmful to dramatic tension. In ours, every time, every solution the doctor comes out up with at the end of the episode you can figure out what it's going to be through watching the episode because I intentionally left like clues and stuff and you get to see the logical progression of his thoughts mm. for each of them. And uh, the other big influences I would say are the 10th Doctor. And the reason for that is while I love David Tennant's performance and you know he is one of the best actors to ever play the role, no one can dispute that. I think there's real problems with how the Doctor is portrayed during Tennant's era. I think that his, um, his moral philosophy is very backwards. Mm. and very self-centered like he's fine with drowning babies but using a gun is beyond the pale mm. that kind of stuff even though if you look at the old classic series he used the gun more than he used the sonic screwdriver mm. so it seems very kind of contradictory to me and the current um the jody whitaker incarnation seems to be copying a lot of those bad habits mm. as well like they they don't they don't seem to have copied like the charm or, like <laughs> the effervescence of 10 but they've copied the preachiness Hmm. Which is one reason why, I mean, it's got a 21% rating on Rotten Tomatoes with the audience. Because <laughs> there's like a writing issue. And I think it's very unfair that a lot of people blame Jodie Whittaker for that. Hmm. She isn't writing the scripts. It's not her fault. And I think she's done okay, to be honest. And the other one was um, Peter Capaldi's Doctor, the 12th Doctor. And once again, it's not his fault because he's a fantastic actor. But I felt like there were certain issues with the way his character was portrayed in terms of it being inconsistent because like he starts out as a very like Sherlock Holmes slash Gregory House type doctor. Like, <laughs> kind of cold and a little bit mean and stuff. And then in season nine, suddenly wearing a hoodie and making speeches about hippie stuff and <laughs> playing the guitar. And, like it's a total 180 on his personality. Mm. And it's not a character arc, mm. which is what they were going for. Like he just switches. Like it's a, you can almost hear like a clunk. <laughs> between the end of season eight and the beginning of season nine, where they've like hastily rewritten everything. And I think that consistency of characterization is the most important thing when you're trying to do any version of Doctor Who. Mm. Because with Doctor Who, like the plots aren't actually that important because like as a lot of people have pointed out, a lot of them are very similar. The way that the thing that makes Doctor Who magic is the characters. It's that interplay between the Doctor and the companion or the Doctor and the villain. And that's where the real magic is. And that's kind of what we tried to do with this. Mm. And I would say it's kind of a mixture of taking the things that I like from Doctors and addressing the things that I don't like. And that was kind of where this Doctor kind of came about. And by the time I finished creating him, I knew there was only one person to play the role, and that was John. Because <laughs> <laughs> nice. John, like you've said, he has that kind of tenant energy. Mm. You know what I mean? Like that youthful, like I said before, effervescence. Mm. And having that and then using that as a platform to basically deconstruct that character archetype was 
I've had a lot of fun with it. Yeah. So that's kind of where it all came about. Well, well, and I guess another thing that you've sort of taken from modern Doctor Who is that it's very much the companion's character arc as well, that Maria is uh, introduced in your first episode and then, you know, the end of uh, your ninth serial is kind of the end of her story as well. And she goes through character changes as we, as we find more about her. And she kind of like grows as a character as well, which is something that we've seen on TV with the likes of Rose and Martha and the other companions. Was that something that was important to you? Because obviously, certainly modern Doctor Who compared to old Doctor Who in the 20th centuries, uh, the companions really didn't have much of an arc. You know, they they would be there for 20 episodes and then get, you know, married off, which seemed to be entirely out of character just because their right, contract was up. They fell in love with this dude they just met. Yeah. I think when we in first started... When we first, a lot of that. Yeah. When we first started making it, we discussed this, didn't we? And I, I was very... We both agreed, in fact, that we were very intent on making Maria's character the, the main role. I mean, mm. you said about me being the star. Actually, I think Hattie's the star. Mm. And I think that she's the main character in our version of Doctor Who and actually our Doctor is pretty much a sidekick <laughs> and, yeah. and I was really it's happy like, with um, that I think that was re- really important and it's proven to be the right choice I think and Hattie has just grown the role hasn't she and Maria became like the, the impetus I guess for a lot of the stories because it was more about passionately about writing her character um, mm. I think that it's definitely something we were, we were intent on making sure was an integral part of the show mm. Um, I would also like to add that um, with regards to the role of the companion in Doctor Who, it has changed significantly over the years, as you've said. But the foundation has always been rooted in that um, that classic like Holmes-Watson relationship, hmm. where the, the way that it works is the Doctor is there to be Sherlock Holmes. He's there to make crazy deductions and be super impressive and be awed at by the audience. Watson is the character that allows Sherlock Holmes to do that. And, like, a lot of people seem to think the companion is just there to be, like, pretty and stuff. And that's not true. They hold the whole structure together. Mm. Like, the whole structure of Doctor Who is built around the companion. And a lot of people don't seem to realise that, including people who make the show. Mm. Like, um, one of the biggest uh, foibles I have with modern Doctor Who is that the Doctor is space Jesus. (laughs) And is the most important person in the universe. When he was never like that in the classic series. Mm. And um, I think that making the Doctor too important is a really good way to make your universe feel very small Mm. and feel very, like, compact and stuff. And um, if you look at the difference between the classic series and the new series, in the classic series, it was very much that dry kind of Watsonian um, dynamic. Mm. But in the new series, like you said, there's, like, that room for, like, character expansion and arcs and stuff, which, I mean... It started in, I would say, in seasons 25 and 26 of the classic series with the 7 and 8 um, relationship, which sure. is very much foundational to this version. But it, it carried over into the new series, which is why whenever someone is asking which season to watch a classic who to get into it, I say season 26. Mm. Because it's the easiest bridge. And I personally, it's my favourite season as well, of all of Doctor Who. Yeah. So there's, there's a little bit of personal bias in there as well. <laughs> but I think it's the easiest to get to grips with on a structural level mm. and on a dramatic level because it is very similar. Sylvester is definitely why I love Doctor Who. I mean, coming back to it, it was Tennant that, that gave me the, the impetus to to take it from just a show I liked to a show I absolutely adored. I mm. think it was Ten- if it wasn't for Tennant, I perhaps wouldn't have got as far into it. But it's McCoy that I used to hide behind the sofa mm. for the, the Daleks and 
Um, and I think that when we were talking about why we chose Maria's character as it was, I think Ace was a huge part of that. You were also mentioned Romana, and um, at the time, I think I was raving about how much I liked Donna as well. Mm. Yeah. But yeah, Ace, I said, if you're going to pick any of them, I think it would be Ace. Yeah. Well, and also, I mean, I think in a way, uh, you know, the tragedy of uh, classic Doctor Who is that it got cancelled just as it was getting really good. You know, that yes. half of uh, <laughs> half of seasons 25 and 26 are the best that Doctor Who had been in a decade. And then it got cancelled. But, um, you know, I listening to your version um, of Doctor Who, there's a reference to Faction Paradox in one of the stories, mm-hmm. which was uh, a concept that was introduced in the books. And I, you know, as a fan, I actually got into Doctor Who through the books first and then started watching the show. Because in a way, they... Uh, built on the potential that the show had when it cancelled and continued it in a way that it we, would have been great to see on TV. And I wonder if that mm-hmm. was something as well that inspired you. Um, the faction paradox thing, I'm really glad you brought that up because that's actually, um, it's a twofold thing, okay? So um, one part of it is it's a red herring. Hmm. As you're trying to work out like who this person is, I want people to think, you know, it could be Faction Paradox, you know what I mean? Because it's like a little Easter egg and stuff. Like, I wanted people to have trouble figuring out it was until we pulled the trigger on that. Which is why we did the accent, which is why we did the voice changer, which is why we have her covered in, like, bone armor in her first appearance. Mm. And the other side of it is, it's a really cheeky Easter egg. So Lawrence Miles, in case anyone doesn't know, um, (laughs) he wrote a couple of Doctor Who books, and one of them, which is a big one, is Alien Bodies, okay? Mm. Which I don't know, you've probably read. I have, it's, it's have great, but I, I think we have okay. to assume so that the listeners a, haven't. <laughs> there is a long standing belief within certain sections of the fandom that the new who is pretty much taken whole cloth from Lawrence Miles's work. Mm. Like, there are things in those books that are clearly copied over in, like, especially the Stephen Moffat era. Mm. Like, the whole River Song thing that, that's Billy Summerfield, mm. you know? Yeah. And um, it's in name only. And like, there's a lot of other things like that, like the war ended up becoming the time war mm. and stuff. And the, the controversy is that they never, ever acknowledge this. And there's even like an interview where I think Stephen Moffat said he's never read a Virgin New Adventures book. <laughs> they predicted a lot of his plot points. Indeed. And even though he wrote a short <laughs> story for them. And that was, it was kind of like, like I like doing little cheeky like nods to that there's a mm. lot of them like i was saying to john in every single episode of tales of a time lord there's a really dirty joke <laughs> okay and i just hide them huh i'm not sure i and noticed them like either so you can play where you have to spot them. yeah hmm. um like there's little i love that stuff i don't know <laughs> i was raised i was raised on 90s sci-fi and that's all about easter eggs and mm. stuff so that's kind of where it all came from like i was i was a star trek and babylon 5 kid hmm where it all kind of came from which is also where as you said um the continuity and stuff comes from as well yeah well one thing was kind of planned out yeah well i mean that's one thing that um i really like listening to uh tales of a time lord is that you introduce various kind of additional characters kind of villains antagonists and Mm. then they come back and so we're not only following the doctor and the companion story but also these kind of ancillary characters whose lives have been infected uh affected by their encounters with uh, the doctor and maria absolutely some some of that was um deliberately planned and some of it came from the fact that the actors did such fantastic (laughs) with raxis we just desperately wanted to get jack back didn't we because he was so superb in the role so I think that's that's perhaps why we chose the specific characters to, yes. to be recurring on. Raxis was um, a big project for me, actually. Uh, 
Because I one of the other like little foibles with Doctor Who is that all the aliens are monsters. Like mm. there's no culture to them. They're not three-dimensional ca- characters. They're just an obstacle for the Doctor to overcome. So with Raxis of Dorax, my goal was to create a three-dimensional human being who just happens to be a big blue fish alien. <laughs> like if you actually look at the first his first appearance, yeah, he's doing bad stuff. But his motivation is he wants to get his kid into a good school. Mm. And then you meet him the next time, and his motivation is he doesn't want his species to be wiped out. Mm. Like, I really wanted to challenge a lot of the preconceived notions about what Doctor Who is and what it can be. And one of my biggest things was that is making the audience feel an element of sympathy for characters that, if you look at it objectively, are reprehensible. Mm. And even with Maria, like, Maria did a very reprehensible thing in her backstory, and a big part of her arc in the story is her coming to terms with that mm. as well and learning that even though you do a bad thing at some point you can do better and i would say that that's the if there's one overriding main theme of tales of the time lord now that it's concluded mm. i would say it's that it's about two very very broken damaged people mm. fixing each other mm. Like that's the that's the core emotional conflict that's driving every story. Well, and also Maria is a kind of companion that we haven't seen on TV or even in the audios. I mean, none of them uh, have you know done terrible things in their past that they're trying to recover from. I mean, Turlo a little bit in that he's initially hired to kill the Doctor, but you know it's not something you ever feel that he'd have managed to pull off anyway. You know, while yeah, Maria no, is no someone. War crimes though. No, indeed. Um, <laughs> So I guess that was a kind of companion, you know, that you felt would be interesting to explore, having never, um, you know, seen them before. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, we, we made the show as much for a love of the show as also to, to do new things with it. In mm. the, I mean, the fact that we wanted it to be for a more adult audience, I guess is the way to put it, is because we feel that BBC is very much tied to merchandise sales. Mm. Um, and we're not, obviously, so being a fan fiction and uh, being a small scale thing. So we, we definitely wanted to make it more more adult show and not fear. There's, there's no swearing in it, there's no sex in it, but we didn't want to be um, fearsome of how dark we could go mm. with it. What rating would you give it? 12, maybe? Some of the episodes? Some of, some of it PG? Depending, on, some depending on the episode, I would say. Some yeah. of them are PG, some of them are definitely 12s. Mm. For sure. <laughs> the, the plot important ones tend to be the ones with the higher rating. Right. I would say. And body count. <laughs> <laughs> um... You said that this is the end of Tale of a Time Lord because I guess it's the end of Maria's story. So you didn't feel like you might want to continue with the Doctor having a new companion after her? Well, Sita was another character that we just adored so much for his first performance. We, mm. we definitely wanted him to come back. Um, so we, we wrote him in as a permanent... So for, for the majority of the Tales of a Time Lord, it's the Doctor and Maria. Mm. But for a certain point, Sita becomes a main companion. Uh, and we have a different dynamic. And and again, that's reflecting something we haven't had on the show, having an android as a companion. That's another reason why we, we, we chose, you know, why we were so passionate about it as well, wasn't it? Is that we wanted to... We, we like a robot. <laughs> I definitely like a robot. Um, so, yeah, I think so. And again, Sita, Jimmy was so superb at playing Sita. We just were desperate to get him back again. He nailed the character so much. Mm. Yeah, Sita was something that was not planned. See, it was one of those things where, like, he was meant to be a one-shot character, and then he became like he became popular with us. He became popular with the audience, so we just went for it. Mm. And, we... and I think it was it ended up being a really good decision 
because it kind of offsets that dynamic in a really nice way. Like there's very much a before Sita, after Sita like mm. divide in the Tales of a Time Lord story, which it happened by accident, but it was a very happy accident. Mm. So going back to why we decided to end it all, we had a very significant conversation, didn't we, where we, we were either going to continue things with the Doctor and Sita and try and do something new with the show, or we were going to accept that it was a beautiful arc and mm. was right to finish it where it was. And we've both got other projects. I run a business mm. where I make... Uh, robot models for mm. people and send them all over the world and Ryan's um, very much writing other things as well he's writing a, a new novel at the moment mm. so we decided that the focus needed to be on that side of our lives and Tales of a Time Lord was never something we were going to do that would suffer at the the cost of having to do other things so it just seemed a natural conclusion in the end I think after, after that conversation it's better to go out on a high you know mm. yeah better to burn out and fade away yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um and I think another thing was I could not think of a story arc that was better than the one we had mm. those first like nine stories. I couldn't. And so I had to say to myself, like, do you want to continue doing this and have it be a compromised quality for the sake of doing it? Or do you want to go out on the highest high you can? Mm. And so, you know, we did that. I think, yeah, I think we're confident we did that. Well, and I guess, I mean, I've not added up, uh, you know, the running, the running time and how it might equate to a season, but it feels like, a season of modern Doctor Who. And that is something I guess we've become used to, that we have a character uh, who is introduced in the first episode of a season and, and leaves at the end. And so that is like a significant chunk of Doctor Who that is kind of discreet and ex exists by itself in a way. It clock, clocks in at about eight and a half hours. I think. Oh, there you go. <laughs> so yeah, it definitely felt that way. We were never, we never, wanted, we never set out to say, okay, each episode is going to be this length or sure. each story is going to be this length. The, the story depicted the length. Didn't it? Mm. And how, how we broke it down afterwards was mm. more a conversation um, of how it, how an audience would receive it. Um, so breaking it into the 20 minute parts, I, I guess it was, I mean, the first episode was very much an experimentation, wasn't it? The pilot and then the, mm -hmm. the following four sections of the story to make up the whole. It was very much an experiment and we've learned and changed along the way. Mm. Um, and the only one that's not broken up is uh, Sunrise, I suppose. That was because we were intent on making an audio movie. Yeah. We wanted to, be, you know, we wanted to challenge ourselves. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And how have you... Uh, initially, initially, the first two stories were written with, in mind being they would use like the classic Who structure mm. of like, you know, four episode story. But then... Two things happened that kind of killed that notion, shall we say. Um, the first one was that you look back at Classic Who and the reality is that those could be two episodes long. Mm. Like most of those stories could be two episodes long. There's a lot of capture and release. Yeah. There's a lot of um, wandering around being separated. There's a lot of reiterating information we've already heard. And I think that the, the, the uh, format that we ended up settling on, which was um, the 22-minute to 30-minute single episode mm. punchy stories i think it works out for us a lot better mm. and um and one of the reasons why i initially went with the four-part structure is because i think modern doctor who has an issue which i call 45 minute syndrome <laughs> which is um they introduce everything and then they have to wrap everything up in a really short amount of time mm. and because they keep the pacing up so fast they don't have time to develop anything mm. And so at first it was like, oh, everything needs to be longer. So it has that extra bit of depth that you can insert stuff in. Mm. Then I started watching The Twilight Zone. 
<laughs> and I realized that you can do really, really tight stories in like 20 minutes. Mm. You just have to be able to. And so, as John said, that became my, my personal challenge as a writer after that. And it, it basically taught me how to write like single episode TV scripts. So I would say it was, it was a big plus for me. But I think that's nice, you know, that you'll have a three-parter, you'll have a two-parter, you'll have a one-parter, you know, that if you have a kind of story that needs a bit more length, you have it. And if you want something that's a bit shorter, then you can, you know, do it really tightly. I don't Absolutely. think we compromised the, the story at all at any point, did we, based on length? It was definitely the other way around. The story depicted the length. Mm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So how, how did you find an audience? Um, I mean... Like I said, there's obviously Doctor Who on TV. There are gaps, and actually, you uh, brought out Time uh, Tale of a Time Lord during one of those year-long gaps that we get in modern Doctor Who. Um, but there is an official audio version made by Big Finish. So, in terms of bringing out your own version, did you find it hard to find an audience, or once you put something out there and it gets a bit of word of mouth, you know, does it just grow? Doctor Who, one of those shows that's so iconic and reaches such a wide audience and such a variety of audience you know from little kids to the people who watched Tom Baker you know mm. such a huge di- divide in the audience uh, scope sorry not divide um, and I think that it was never going to be that much of a challenge based on that just because we know there's people out there craving it there's yeah. definitely the impetus to make it it did include the fact that there isn't enough of a constant flow of TV shows mm. I will agree that um, we've both got a healthy respect for Big Finish. I don't think we were ever thinking about challenging them. <laughs> it's very expensive to be into Big Finish. They're not cheap. So I well, I was going to say yours is free. <laughs> that's quite one of the reasons why we chose to make ours free, yeah. yeah. Um, but, I mean, one of the, the, the tagline that we sell the show on is by fans for fans. Mm. And I think that that was constantly in our hearts, wasn't it, when we were making it. We wanted it to be a show that someone watching Doctor Who, loving Doctor Who, and... I guess find, finding the issues that anyone has. The, the thing is, when you when you adore a show, and it's very much obvious with sci-fi shows, you get so passionate about it that you find yourself investing in it to a point where you will see holes in it. It happens with Star Wars, happens with Star Trek, happens with Doctor Who. And I think that we wanted to make a show that we thought that very much that we wanted to hear, that we wanted to make, and we hope other fans of the show wanted to make. Mm. But that... Everything he just said is, yeah, <laughs> I co-signed all of that. I would also like to add, um, at first, promoting it was very much an uphill struggle just because we were met with a lot of, obviously, scepticism, which is mm. justifiable. You know, we're these new upstart guys and we're doing something that it's like, as you say, Big Finish have been established doing for years now. Mm. And there was there was a bit of pushback at first, but once we were a few stories deep, I think Sunrise was like the point where a lot of people started going, okay, we need to take these guys seriously. Mm. And um, there were, I would say there were two big turning points for us in terms of how we interact with the audience and how the audience has started to see us. And the two big turning points for me were the episode Shangri-La where we introduced Sita. Mm. Because uh, um, that was where we settled into more of kind of a Douglas Adams-esque, almost comedic tone for certain mm. stories. And that really resonated with people. And that's still one of our most popular stories. Hmm. The other was um, at the height of the uh, the 13th Doctor controversy. I made an announcement on our site that we are a judgment-free zone. Hmm. And we don't care one way or the other. Hmm. And that kind of got us a lot of goodwill in the audience. 
that's kind of my take on it. But also, I mean, I guess, uh, you know, in inverted commas, old fashioned marketing works as well, because the way that I came across it was I saw literally a poster on a street in Brighton and was intrigued. Uh, I was intrigued by the logo of this kind of skeleton eating its own tail. You know, We, we don't do posters anymore because that, that poster cost me 75 pounds. Oh, my God. I got, I got fined for sticking it up on a poster wall that was a poster wall for the fringe. And, right. Uh, yeah, I was being watched. I didn't realise at the time. And then I, they followed me home and fined me on the spot. Oh, how funny. So, well, um, that's how I found so it. So we don't do posters anymore. <laughs> um, I think from promoting ourselves as musicians me particularly mm. um, I, I, I used to take I do a lot of music but it's all very much for the fun now I've got an album coming out tomorrow funnily enough mm. um, uh, yeah but I think that everything I learned as a musician about promoting myself I then put into Tales of a Time Lord and equally with teaching I, I didn't know how to make an audio show mm. I, I basically went on listening to um Probably the arches in the car when I was a kid. <laughs> my, my, my dad used to drive. I think that was my basis on how to make an audio. Um, so everything I'd learned as a musician and through having my home studio and recording myself um, and sending my music off to producers, I then put into Tales of a Time Lord and made mm. Tales of a Time Lord and, and self-taught. And the, the, you can hear it very much getting better and better through <laughs> through Tales of a Time Lord. If I, if I listen to the pilot now, I cringe quite a lot at uh, <laughs> some of the techniques I used to use. Um, and then. I was very much sample based to begin with and I taught myself more and more Foley work mm. and it's now come full circle in that everything I learned making the audio drama and taught myself doing that has now gone back into me beginning to produce for myself nice um, I always work with different producers through my life but I've recently just started producing my own music and mm. I did a project called Turmoil which was literally just the sound of me teaching myself how to make so, so you can hear through turmoil that the quality of the songs get better and better hmm. uh, and i released everything i didn't hold back i didn't pick and choose and now the album that i'm releasing tomorrow is actually entirely produced by me i've got hmm. session musicians that have come in and put bass lines and guitar lines and melodica over the top of it but it's all created by me so nice i think it's been a very um a cathartic process i, I mean i can't speak for ryan as, as the writer hmm. of the process but um, for me, making the show has been a, very much a learning curve and very much cathartic and mm. has gone back into all my other projects. Mm. Um, uh, and like, in the same way that being a musician went into how to advertise Tales of Time Lord, both of those things have now gone into me starting my business, which is the robots that I make, which you, mm. obviously the audience can't see, but you're surrounded, <laughs> surrounded by many, many sculpts here. Um, so, yeah, I think... It, 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 the thing with social media, particularly as, a, as a, an advertising form, is it evolves incredibly quickly. I'm very mm. lucky in that my partner does that as part of her job, so she keeps me up to date on things. But mm. um, things that we started uh, using as advertising at the very start of Tales of a Time Lord have pretty much gone the by, by the by now, and mm. you know new things come on. Um, but you were saying about classic ways of advertising, and I think that the obvious one is word of mouth. Yeah. That, that word of mouth may be online, it may be a social media word of mouth, but it's definitely something that has been probably the biggest help to us throughout mm. the whole thing. Um, it's making quality products and then it began to advertise itself. Mm. I mean, you've kind of answered uh, the next question I was going to ask in the sense that, you know, you've said that making um, Tale of a Time Lord has helped you with other aspects of your career as a musician and, and so on. Um, but thinking of Doctor Who made by fans for fans, I mean, in a way, you could actually say the modern show 
is that anyway? Um, but people who work on the modern show, like Nick Briggs, like Mark Gatiss, like Rob Shearman, all uh, worked on bootleg fan productions before they did official Doctor Who. So do you have any kind of, you know, desire or hope that you might get picked up by the people who do official Doctor Who in some capacity? Or are you happy just that you've made what you've made and it exists, you know, and has a fan base? I can only speak for myself. Um, and I'll let Ryan answer with his version in a minute. But I don't think I was ever in Doctor Who to become... Um, to work for the BBC. I don't mm. think that was ever my intention. Um, but certainly if things were... You know, if opportunities were, were offered to us, I'm sure I would consider them. Mm. Um, I don't think... I think at the time when we first started it, I possibly had aspirations <laughs> of being of being uh, an actor of some sort. Mm. But I think that's gone by the by now. I'd happily do more voiceover work and more, mm. um, and play more stuff. But... I don't know, really. I mean, my main focus, like I said, is one of the reasons why we stopped the show is because we, we need to focus on, on other things. And one of my main focuses is my business. So I mm. guess that's probably going to take the priority now. Mm. And for you, Ryan? Um, if they asked, I would say yes. But <laughs> other than that, I don't feel any pressing need. Mm. Um, I feel like I set out to see if I could make my own version of Doctor Who. And as far as I'm concerned, I succeeded. Mm. And now my main focus... Um, is to go back to kind of to my roots in a way, because before I um before I did Tales of the Time Lord, I was a novelist. Mm. Um, I did a book called Lioness, which is um one of the first black female superheroes that isn't based on a pre-existing white male character. <laughs> and then after that, I started working on Tales of the Time Lord and didn't stop until it stopped. Mm. And now I'm going kind of back to my roots. Um, I'm working on a comic book of Lioness, which may be out at some point. We don't know yet, but that's... Um, currently in kind of the pre-production stages, as it were. Um, I'm writing a script for a video game, which I'm working on in development with a company called Anansi Media. And I'm also currently working on my second novel, which is called uh, Horatio. Hmm. And it's going to be kind of like naval combat meets sci-fi hmm. in a way. Trying to create a universe that was like Star Trek, hmm. but had what I would consider to be political realism. Mm. Because I think that Star Trek is very idealistic. Mm. And it's almost idealistic to a fault in some areas. So that's kind of where the, the vibe of that book is. And a lot of people have been very surprised reading the relatively kid-friendly tales of the Time Lord. And then they go on to like my novel stuff and they're very like surprised. Mm. Because I, I, don't, I don't have to pull punches in those books in the same way that you... Kind of do, and I think that's a wonderful thing because limitation is what truly breeds great work. Mm. Like the, the limitations that come with not being able to use a visual medium, the limitations that come with obviously the fact that we've produced this on well, no budget, <laughs> the limitations that come with the fact that we've only had local actors to pull from, I think all contributed to what makes this Tales of the Time World special. Mm. Personally. I think we've had some fantastic actors through the door. We're very lucky in Brighton. We're spoiled for choice in that there's so many budding actors out there. Mm. Um, and we've had some incredible people in, in through the doors over time, like Justin Hayward and um, Emily Carding and Philippa Hammond. And, uh, and of course, our, our, our character seater, Jimmy Dean, who's a, a voice actor now. I think actually doing Tales of a Time Lord with us gave him the impetus to start his career as as a voice actor oh nice um, but yeah we've been spoiled for choice really but it was uh, not something that we knew was going to happen it wasn't something that we knew at the start it was very much uh, 
friend, friends of a friend to begin with. Um, mm. And the more people knew our show, and the, and to be honest, the fact that they could people tend to jump at the idea of being in Doctor Who. <laughs> um, so we've been incredibly lucky, and we've had some super. I mean, Emily's like a Shakespearean award-winning actress, so right. we've been very, very lucky. But um, but we've had a great talent pool to to pull from because Brighton is full of people like that that are starting their careers in acting and mm. desperate to get work. And, yeah. And even if it's just bootleg Doctor Who, it means it's something they can put on their showreel, you know, and, you know, the way that you mix it uh, and record it sounds incredibly professional. So even though it's not the licensed version, it's still something, you know, that has professional polish and is good for them, you know, as something to put on their CV. I think we're both, to some extent, perfectionists and we would never have put it out there where we're not absolutely, obsessively adoring what we produced. Yeah. Um, It's definitely a labour of love. Making tales of family. Certainly hasn't hurt my portfolio. <laughs> I would say having eight hours of um, what is effectively a series that you've written yourself has Indeed. been very helpful to me. <laughs> uh, so I would say, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of people who, um, although they came in through the doors and stuff, and like they acted with us, and it's amazing to see like where they've launched themselves from. From that, like the John was saying that, like um, Jimmy and stuff. Like, at first, I remember just being blown away by how good the performance was. And I just knew, like, this guy was going to go on to do something good. And I'm so happy for him that, like, things are working out for him now. Because, frankly, he deserves it. Mm. Like, obviously, because of the distance thing, I don't get to be there for the actual recordings. Mm. But I hear things and I see things and I, I, I just feel so much pride. Because, at first, there's a certain... There's a certain trepidation when you give something you've written to other mm. people to kind of bring to life because it's like, oh, well, I'm going to give you, it's like dropping your kid off at daycare. Like, I'm going to give you my baby <laughs> and I'm going to trust you to bring out the best in it. And that trust was well placed, obviously. Like, I can't say anything but nice things about what John's done as like a director and as an actor. The, the progress that you've made as well is, is phenomenal. Like you listen to like Teardrop and then you listen to Girl from Heaven and the Prime. It sounds like two different actors. Like it's it's crazy. And just to be able to be a part of this and to be able to kind of serve as a springboard, I guess, for all of these great actors to bring these characters to life and make choices that I never could have predicted mm. as well. Like I well, obviously the ego wants me to be able to say, Oh yeah, I planned it all out and oh, that's me and stuff, but it's not. It's not. Like a huge part of every production is collaboration mm. and I think that was another big thing that a lot of people kind of don't see mm. like because when you look at um, like media products you only ever see the end result like you only ever see the final product you don't see the blood and the sweat and the tears <laughs> that people put into it so I'd it's say, very I'd... difficult to gauge until you do it yourself I'd, I'd like say the craziness mm. I'd and say... the learning experience I don't know <laughs> I'd, I'd say for every um, for every hour of audio, there was probably about twenty or more hours of conversation. Wow! At least. Oh yes, <laughs> probably more than that. Cool. Okay. Well, I think that'll do nicely. Thanks a lot, guys. Cheers. Nice one. Thank you. The nine and a bit stories that make up the totality of Tales of a Time Lord can be found via various channels on the internet, including YouTube, SoundCloud, Bandcamp and iTunes. All of the serials can be listened to via the iTunes podcast app, and you can find more information 
at talesofatimelord.bandcamp.com. The actor playing the Doctor, who also directed and did the sound design for Tales of a Time Lord, can be found at invocal.bandcamp.com, that's I-N-V-O-K-A-L, and his side business of creating original robot sculptures can be found at screwedsculpts.com. For more information about R.R. Molyneux's latest novel, Lioness, The Tale of Teenage Superheroines, you can buy it now for Kindle and as a paperback from Amazon. And you can read a serialized version of the book by going to facebook.com stroke lioness series. So to play out the first half of today's show, here's an extract from another episode of Tales of a Time Lord, The World That Shouldn't Be, in which the Doctor's companion Maria seems about to meet a sticky end at the hands of the mysterious time-travelling agent. You seem very willing to die. Well, if you kill me, there'll be no more need to harm anyone else here, right? Right. Right. So let's get on with it then. Very well. And the Dutch? Oh, loads. But that doesn't matter now. At least I get to go out helping someone. Oh yeah, that's one that got me quite the bonus. Not what I meant. Goodbye, Kite. Goodbye, Maria. Kinda wish our only interactions weren't electro-based, but it's nice not dying alone. Any last words? I'd think about a new look if I were you. Very well. For crimes against the fabric of time and space, I sentence you to complete cessation of existence. You will never have been born. The victims of your crimes will never have suffered the injustices you've brought upon them. We reserve this punishment only for the most vile, dangerous and destructive threats to the peace and stability of the universe. Maria Swift, may the void have mercy upon your scattered remains. You're listening to Audio Dramatics on Resonance 104.4 FM and DAB in London. In the second half of today's show, I'm talking to writer, actor and director Nigel Fares. Nigel has created a number of audio plays for the production company Big Finish for their various license ranges, such as Doctor Who, Sapphire and Steel, Blake Seven and The Tomorrow People. He's also the author of their new original title, Shilling and Sixpence Investigate, a pastiche of Agatha Christie murder mysteries featuring David Warner and Celia Imry as the two leads. To give you a flavour of the story... Here's an early scene from the first episode, The Missing Year, in which the two characters meet for the first time. So it isn't haunted, then? Of course not. And there's no such thing as the old witch of Mornington or the mighty beast of Dead Man's Bay, either. They didn't tell me about them. Folks round here, they're a superstitious bunch. You could tell them their Jersey spuds were possessed by old Nick and they'd go and get them exercise rather than stick them on a plate. The only people who have seen the mighty beast looming out of the mist have been so ossified they wouldn't be able to tell a salmon from a plate of lemons. Now, isn't that better? This is the real spirit of Cornwall. This air, nothing like it. Which is quite invigorating. Good man, good man. What now? A jaunt into the village for a wee snifter before lunch? What's your pleasure? Don't tell me. Gin and it. Yes. yes, (laughs) I knew it. Good, good. The heron and lobster it is. My treat. Isn't it a little bit early? What do you suppose is going on there, I wonder? Look behold, down there, on the edge of Bogley Wood. The one with the crooked clock tower. It's been stuck at 25 past three o'clock for years, just like my grandfather's clock. Too large for the shelf, so it stood 90 years on That's the floor. That's the fellow. Look <laughs> at that now. Half a dozen policemen swarming around it like beetles on a carpet. 
I'm talking to Nigel Fares, um, author of several big Finnish plays uh, for various ranges, including Sapphire and Steel, uh, Doctor Who, Blake Seven, and now one of the authors of a big Finnish original, the series Shilling and Sixpence. Shilling and Sixpence Investigate. Investigate, sorry. <laughs> we had to call it that. Um, oddly, It was originally called Shilling and Sixpence. They said they didn't want Shilling and Sixpence to sound like a replacement for Jago and Lightfoot. Ah, okay. So I added an investigate on the end. Nice. Yeah. Well, let's start with Shilling and Sixpence. Investigate. Um, investigate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like I said, you've been writing these audio dramas for a number of years, mm. but Shilling and Sixpence investigate is actually an audio adaptation of kind of murder mystery weekends that you've been running yes not weekends actually um uh, yes i've been doing it for over 20 years now i think coming up to 22 23 years um i've been writing murder mystery events come dinner theater kind Mm. of things um uh, and our usp is uh that uh i write a new episode every month Mm. so it's carrying on it's a massive murder mystery soap opera always set in the same village okay so it's a bit like midsummer murders um meets foils war because we're in the 40s at the Mm. moment um but shilling invest uh, Shilling and Sixpence Investigate was a sort of one of the story arcs that we used uh, in the murder mystery soap opera, mm. the Morlington Mysteries, as they're called. Okay. Um, that would cover, I think it would have covered about six to eight episodes. Uh, no, around about six of the regular okay. dinner theatre episodes. Which you've turned into eight half an hour episodes. That's right, yeah. So how does that equate in terms of time? With the original uh, version people would come in, have their dinner, yeah. and the whole experience would take a couple of hours? Yeah, a couple, two to three hours, okay. yes, which includes um, intervals for them to eat <laughs> and drink and talk about who they think done it and all that, yeah. Nice. But uh, in, in those versions, we just have three actors playing approximately nine characters per evening. Gosh. Well, and they leave um, the room and put on different clothes. Yeah, and yeah we do. Brilliant. While they're eating, we change characters. Oh, excellent. Yeah. And it travels all around the country. Yes, yes. We um, we have regular venues. Uh, so we have people coming in every month to see uh, what's happened next. Well, because I was going to say, if there are uh, fans who want to find out what happens mm. next and you're moving all about the country, it would be a little bit unfair that they have to travel from no, no. <laughs> Land's End Although, to John O'Groats. Well, funnily enough, we do have people <laughs> People who turn up in Whitstable Castle say, uh, saying, oh, we were on a steam train in Tunbridge Wells and we the next one was sold out. So we decided to come to Whitstable for the weekend oh, and wow. see your next episode. So <laughs> it's quite nice, really. You should get a cut from Tourism Britain. To... Yes, we really should, actually. Yes. <laughs> um, so presumably that's semi-improvised. Uh, no, 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 no. It's no. all heavily oh, okay. scripted. Wow. Um, The only point where there are um, bits of impro are when some clever dick in the audience will say something. Mm. And obviously, uh, we we don't just ignore that. We Mm. uh, incorporate incorporate it and and play along with it a bit. But most of us have been doing it for so long. I mean, I've been doing it for the whole 22 years. Wow. Um, uh, But most of us have been doing it so long that we kind of are quite adept at Mm. incorporating that. Okay. And then um, moving on with the plot and the script. Oh. Yeah. Yes. So you've been um, organising these events alongside doing the audio work. Yeah. So 
And, and my actual job, which well, is an actor. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, so all that time, had you thought it would be great if I could introduce this to a new audience via audio, or was it more of a recent idea to actually combine your two sort of parallel careers? It was it, it was David Richardson's ideas. He's one of the uh, executive producers mm. of, um, sh- uh, of Big Finish, mm. and he came up with this idea whilst... Uh, my best friend and I were on holiday with him actually down in Wales hmm. and he said to her um, it's Louise Jameson um, mm. of Leela yes. um, fame um, you should pitch an idea and Nigel you pitch an idea uh, about your murder mysteries and she pitched At A Girl which ah. is an amazing series yes. I played um, an a an evil abortionist in it which was just great okay <laughs> i love playing villains um and uh in fact it was nominated for a bbc audio award actually mm. um so that 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 did well and um yes and we got lovely david warner and celia imry and lou herself mm. in on it so we had a lovely time. Yeah. Well, so there were a number of Big Finish originals that are all sorts of different genres. Mm. Did the producers of Big Finish then basically ask uh, regular uh, writers for their various ranges to pitch ideas for the originals? Yes, I think that's how it happened. Okay. Yeah. Um, I wasn't really in on that process, mm. apart from this holiday with David, Yeah. <laughs> uh, where he suggested it. So I, I've no idea how many... Uh, mm. pitches there were okay um but they're all quite different i think and mm. quite interesting i th- i've been i've been telling big finish for years <laughs> that they should go into original drama because mm. they've built up such a huge repertory of really decent actors oh indeed brilliant sound designers brilliant writers directors you know that it's crying out to me Mm. For a bigger audience. Yeah. Um, well, and it also makes it easier to sell because obviously if something is tied into a long-running story, that either means it, you need to be a bit of a fan of that franchise to get mm. it, but also then there's presumably licensing fees with the BBC. Yeah, and, oh, yes, and so absolutely. Yeah. While if something's an original drama, that kind of cuts out the middleman. You it know, does. something that can attract a new audience and so on. And also I believe um, all of the big Finnish originals so far, or at least perhaps bit by bit, are on Audible. So that's yeah. a whole new uh, way of getting people into Big Finish product too. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, because of that, I read somewhere that Audible have a minimum recommended length of their audios because a lot of people buy them using a subscription and therefore they feel they want to have value for money. Mm. Did any of that come into the conversation with you? They didn't say, if you're doing this for us, it needs to be at least four hours. No, no, no. Oh, okay. Did, no, it didn't. Interesting. Um, Yes, that's interesting. No, I'd not heard that. Um, really, I, I was thinking of it, I think, in terms of a box set. Mm. I think I, I, I thought that it was going to be one of those four-disc box sets sure. originally, maybe a fifth with a documentary on it. So I think that's, that's where I, I was in my head. Mm. So therefore, eight half-hour, 35-minute episodes seemed just about right to me. Okay. Um, I listened to the extras on uh, Shilling and Sixpence Investigate mm. and a lot of your regular cast who you've brought from the live production into the um, the drama uh, say that the audio version is a lot darker mm. than the version that you present uh, on stage. Um, that was in inverted commas for people who can't see us in the booth. <laughs> um, <laughs> 
uh, as such, was that something that was almost inevitable when you were transferring it into another medium that you wanted to actually tease out the darkness? Because I guess when people are going for a murder mystery experience, they wanted to perhaps be a bit tongue in cheek. Yes, while absolutely. This gives you the experience. Yeah, although you know. interestingly enough, and I think this was something that may have come out in the extras. Mm. Um, there's always a dark undercurrent, but partly because you're writing. Uh, I, I'm, I'm writing a murder mystery. There's got to be some darkness well, in that, <laughs> even if it's played as farce or carry on murder or whatever. Um, but then, so many people say, "Oh, I, I'd so love to see a good murder." You're like, yes, yes, <laughs> there's, absolutely. There's it's odd, something slightly it? psychopathic about that. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's quite a British thing, actually. Yes. <laughs> uh, all completely psychotic. But yes, yeah, so uh, I think because of the medium. Um, we couldn't really rely on the farcical um, costumes, you know, that, the, the exaggerated playing that we have in the theatre versions. Mm. So I think by its ver- by the very medium, it, it, it got more complex, more intimate, and therefore darker. Okay. Um, and in fact, the, this particular story arc that we used for Schilling and Sixman Investigated had a very dark idea right at the base of it mm. that in the dinner theatre we referred to but never really explored because it just wasn't right when they were eating a prawn cocktail or whatever, yeah. you know what I mean? Sure. Um, so regular people who, who, who'd who been to these dinner theatre um, experiences mm. picked up on the plot really mm. without it being rammed down their faces whereas in, if you're listening to it on CD yeah. or uh, not CD on download yeah. we can go right into the de- depth of it you know? <laughs> yeah go right there and so what dictated the um, structure of the audio version because it's four uh, stories each which are told over two half an hour episodes mm. so there's kind of like a mini cliffhanger every half an hour then a sort of revolution resolution to a chapter after mm. an hour but then it continues to tell one long story yes um well again i think I, when i was writing it i was thinking of the four disc uh, uh, affair okay. and the, also uh, i suppose doctor who having a cliffhanger every 25 minutes yes yes <laughs> i mean that's yes that comes with the territory doesn't it <laughs> um Yes, yeah, I think that I think that was uh, the reason for that, um, and I suppose in in the you know in the dinner theatre original ones, uh, I always do end up on a cliffhanger. I mean, mm. we have the EastEnders do 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 at the end of it. That's the level that we're right. on, um, which they love. Mm. Um, yeah, but obviously we couldn't do that in Sixpence, but we had some. A gorgeous um, composer, mm. Edwin pa- Edward Patrick White, who composed this wonderful theme for us, mm. um, which are two instruments, one representing shilling, one representing sixpence, that answer each other. I just think yeah. it's a thing of beauty. <laughs> and once you've heard it, you can't... Lots of people have said, who've heard it, say, oh, yeah, no, 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 that's that's a theme to da-da-da-da-da, mm. or something from the 70s or whatever I said no it's not it's actually but that was the that was the brief okay. make something that you that the audience will think they know mm. um, and I've got of course I've got it playing in my head now at this <laughs> very moment <laughs> nice um, so Shilling and Sixpence are played by David Warner and Cecilia Rimri. Mm. Did you have them both in mind or similar types of actors when you were writing the parts for the audio version 
I think in my head, before we'd even talked about casting, I had, well, I know I definitely had two actors in my mm. head, but I always do. Mm. Whatever, whatever medium I'm writing, I always think, oh, it would be nice to have Derek Jacobi playing this part, or, you know, yeah. or Helen Mirren, or do you sure. know what I mean? I always yeah. have that casting uh, in my head while I'm writing. Um, and then when it came to actually casting it, there, it was quite a long process, actually. Mm. We went through quite a lot of combinations. But David got attached very early on. Mm. Um, I, I worked with him before on Sapphire and Steel. In mm. fact, it was the first job he did for Big Finish um, years ago, I think in 2004 or something. Mm. And we kept in contact over the years and, and uh, uh, good friends. And when when his name was suggested, I, th I thought, oh, well, yes, of course, it's got to be David, hasn't it? I mean, there's nobody else now. Um, and then uh, as soon as, so we had him. And then when we approached Celia Imry, she accepted it without reading it because she mm. loves David Warner. Nice. As most of that generation of actor and actress does because mm. he was the definitive Hamlet in the yeah. 50s. Yeah. Um, hmm. And also, I guess, you know, when you have kind of a double act who are sparking off each other, mm. you need to know that they work well together. Yeah, which what uh, yeah. Well, we weren't to know that. No. Um, <laughs> in fact, there was a certain degree of trepidation on the first day because mm. if they <laughs> hadn't they hit it, <laughs> Yes, exactly. And of course, the first scene they did was hysterically funny and they obviously loved working together, so it was lovely. And in fact, that first scene... Um, set the tone for the the whole of their mm. um, chemistry, their their relationship, of mm. the whole thing, because um, we suggested uh, that Celia perhaps play it quite fast, as if mm. she can't get her words out okay. quick enough, yeah, and stop David Warner saying most of his lines <laughs> as an experiment, just yeah. just. just um, um, see how the dynamic of the scene mm. went that way and it was so funny and so sweet and <laughs> they both took to it so that's more or less set the ball rolling mm. yeah. and that's kind of suitable for the era if you think about sort of 1930s um, screwball comedies with strong female characters mm. and that's exactly how they, they work on screen yeah absolutely <laughs> yeah. Um, so would I be right in thinking that Shilling and Sixpence aren't characters in the live version. So in a way, you've brought in two amateur detectives to solve the crimes that you've previously done on stage. Absolutely it. Which is yes, an interesting idea. I was know? determined to do that. Well, partly it was partly because um, uh, either Big Finish or Audible said we want two names mm. attached to it. Sure. Um, I think it, that could have been at the Audible stage. Um, and I thought... I want to play the inspector, <laughs> uh, who actually in the in the stage version is called Inspector Sixpence. Okay, I'm Arthur Sixpence, um, but I still wanted to play uh, the inspector, and I still wanted Max Day, who plays um, Sergeant Salt, in it to play the sergeant. I still wanted that dynamic to go on, mm. um, so I thought it'd be quite fun to have a couple of amateur detectives who are English teacher and headmistress to come mm. in and actually do a better job of solving it than the policemen do. <laughs> and that sets up an interesting dynamic. It's sort of Miss Marple dynamic, really. Indeed, yeah. yeah. Mm. yeah. 
Um, so you said that you've been doing the stage version for 20 years. Uh, mm. You've been doing audio dramas for probably about the same amount of time. Yes, it probably is, actually. Um, you're an actor, you're a writer, you're a mm. director. What order did those things come in? Did you start off as a professional actor and then yeah. started doing writing? or? Yeah, so, yes, that, that, that's how I define myself. I'm an actor. Okay. Um, but I've always done the writing to give myself work <laughs> uh, along the way. Um, yeah, so it's always been... The writing has been there to support the acting, really. Okay. Um, but actually, that's how I got involved with the Big Finish lot, mm. because before they um, went into it professionally, they used to do amateur mm. um, Doctor Who things um, at in the BBC studios. Oh, and okay. I was a jobbing actor back then, and... I I think I can't remember how I got involved, but anyway, I, I sent off a voice tape to them, oh, and became right. Doctor Who's companion for five years. Oh, how funny! Yeah. I didn't know that. <laughs> oh, <laughs> right. Okay, so I was employed by an actor as them, and then I said, "Well, I've always written stuff as well," mm. and they said, "Oh, writers are Doctor Who," so I wrote that for them. Oh. Uh, and got involved in that side as well. Oh, okay. Mm. So that meant that you were actually writing for two, perhaps rival is too strong a word, uh, for two rival bootleg Doctor Who companies, uh, Nick Briggs's audiovisuals and BBV, who did... Ah, uh, no, no, no. The audiovisuals came first. Okay. And then out of the audiovisuals came BBV with mm. Bill and Big Finish with Gary. Yeah. Because they both produced the... Um, audiovisuals yeah. first ah, yes okay. but yes i did work for both uh, big finish and uh, bbv yes so i mean that must be kind of a funny situation obviously for the audiovisuals uh they were i don't know small enough that the bbc turned a blind eye to them that they're being handed yes, out I on I cassette think because we, no, nobody was paid or anything yeah. i think it was just an, a, a fan thing i think yeah. but uh, they did use professional actors. I worked with Michael Wisher, who, of course, oh, was wow. the first Davros. Okay. He was in one of mine, and also... I think he was in the first one I did, in fact. I, we huh. were both the villains, <laughs> um, nice. which was great. Oh, he was... Did you ever meet him? No, unfortunately not. Oh, what not. a character. He really was. And very method. I understand <laughs> that when he did Davros, he did it with um, really? a paper bag over his head, which I can actually imagine because <laughs> th this was audio, obviously. Uh, but there was a scene where he had to, uh, the scene began uh, with him dialing a number on the phone. And we said action. And then he stood at the, at the mic. Oh, that's brilliant. Miming. Listeners at home, you can't see that I'm miming the <laughs> telephone. And then began the scene as soon as he got through. Excellent. Uh, it was very eccentric, but he was brilliant. Mm. Yeah. Um, so so you were making non-for-profit Doctor Who radio plays that were called Doctor Who. Yeah. And then you were writing stories for BBV with a character called The Professor, who yeah, sounded yes, an awful right. lot like, like the Doctor. Sylvester McCoy, yeah. And he was played by <laughs> Sylvester McCoy. Yes. And Ace played by Sophie Aldred, because I guess the BBC couldn't copyright the word Ace. Yes, <laughs> So yes. And those could be sold for profit, because they didn't have the word Doctor Who written on them. But Yes, <laughs> yes, I guess so. I don't know how he got away with it, no. really. Um, but I guess that must have been fun, that you felt that you were writing new Doctor Who yes, with the original cast. Yes, absolutely. Mm. And in fact, there was... Colin Baker played the, the, the oh no the stranger that's it yeah, that yes was yes that's right yeah. absolutely yes it was Colin and Nicola I first wrote for ah. that was for BBV as well I think mm. um, and uh, that very much was 
Doctor Who without calling it Doctor Who, mm. uh, with no TARDIS, no time travel, nothing like that. Yes. They were just on a planet, I think. Yes, all the moving through time and space happens off stage. Yes, <laughs> yes, that's right. But that was great fun. Um, and I remember writing a whole speech for Colin Baker, knowing that he was a better actor than he appeared in, mm. in, in, in the TV thing, because he was very badly served, I thought, with the, I agree. With the TV. He's a great actor. Um, um, where was I going with that? Oh, I know. When I wrote myself a part in that, because um, I said to Bill, yes, I'll, I'll write you one as long as I can have a part in it. Mm. And he said, great, we're filming it in Lanzarote. And I said, oh, oh great. <laughs> so I wrote myself a part where I had to do the stunts of falling out of, of a motorboat and drowning and being oh, washed no. up on shore, thinking, oh, this is great. And then... Colin's wife had a baby uh, just before we were due to go off to Lanzarote, so he understandably didn't want to travel. And we ended up filming it on January the 3rd on Brighton Beach. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I've never been so cold in my life. <laughs> yeah, that was great. <laughs> Seems more authentically BBC, though. If yeah, oh, get, yes, If you're going to rip off Doctor yes. Who. Yes, exactly. <laughs> in fact, I think it was uh, filmed on one of the beaches that they had used for the Doctor Who programme. So, yeah, it's very authentic. Nice. Very cold. <laughs> And it meant that you were also mixing with people who would go on to make real Doctor Who, like Mark Gatiss, who also wrote oh, a number. Oh, yes, yes. Well, BB Mark and I went to the same college. Ah, okay. Um, uh, Bretton Hall, a couple of years apart, from, but I was first introduced to him as another ex-Bretoner mm. um, before he became the Mark Gatiss, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that, yes, oh, yes, he worked for BBV as well, didn't he? I'd yeah. forgotten that. Well, these Doctor Who fans. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, he's lovely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, And then uh, Big Finish come along, and you've written a number of Doctor Who scripts for them, but also uh, you've directed Sapphire and Steel. Mm. uh, You've written for Blake Seven. Um, Were they all franchises that you were a fan of? Yes, absolutely. In fact, uh, the one you didn't mention was The Tomorrow People, Ah. which is my big passion when I was... uh, a teenager. Well, I loved Doctor Who. The Thunderbirds and Tomorrow People were my mm. my particular ones. Mm. Um, I just think the Tomorrow People had such a brilliant concept at the begin, uh, the centre of it. Mm. And I was at a Doctor Who convention in LA and sharing a hot tub with Jason Hay Gallery, <laughs> or Jason Huge Salary as we call him, but big finish. Um, <laughs> And he was, I think he'd either just started or was about to start Tomorrow People. Okay. And I said, oh, please, I've got to write for the Tomorrow People or, or be in it. I'll play I'll play a guard or something. I've got to be involved. Nice. And so from that, I got to co-produce it with him, which oh. was brilliant. I loved the Tomorrow People. They were my family. Okay. And then because I was working on that, he asked me to produce Sapphire and Steel as well. Mm. With David, of course. Yes. Um, as as much as I love uh, original Sapphire and Steel with David McCallum and Joanna Lumley, mm, yeah. I do feel like they kind of traded up when they did the big finish version because <laughs> <laughs> Susanna Harker and David Warner are actually better actors. Oh, well, I'm not Ooh. sure about better actors, but they had more gravitas. Perhaps. <laughs> yeah, I think we gave them a bit of gravitas. No, Susie Harker is just amazing. Mm. Well, they both are David and Susie yes. Harker, but of course we had Mark playing Gold mm. as well, and. Um, um, lovely. Oh, David Collins. Yes, I said David. Of course. Um, I was about to do this to remind myself. <laughs> <laughs> yes, David Collins playing um, 
silver, wasn't it? It's been a while since I've listened yes, to them, but no, one of the elements. Gosh, I can't remember either. That's appalling. One of the transuranic elements. Yes, <laughs> that's right, uh, which is lovely. Yeah. And I guess for both, uh, even though it was a different cast, with both Sapphire and Steel and the Tomorrow People, it was a continuation of the original series rather than trying to fit in the gaps. Yes. And so did that feel, you know, uh, more creative in a way because you yeah. were actually continuing on an existing storyline? Much more interesting for me as a mm. writer and I suppose I was the showrunner, what yeah. you'd call the showrunner <laughs> now, which we certainly didn't then. But yes, I wrote about half of each, I think. Um mm. Yes, much more creative. And certainly with the Tomorrow People, I wanted um, to take it down the route of exploring what it meant to be a Tomorrow person and the effect that that would have on your family and mm. your friends and, and society around you and, and uh, to make it more interesting um, psychodrama, I suppose. Mm. And in fact, that's where I first met Lou. Uh, ah, Jameson, I cast okay. her as one of the Tomorrow People's mums, <laughs> only because I wanted to work with her. Oh, I called funny. the character Lou, and I kept texting Jason, Louise Jameson, Louise Jameson, <laughs> Louise Jameson every day. And then he said, oh, why don't we get Louise Jameson in to play this character called Lou? <laughs> there we are. Nice. Um, but with Sapphire and Steel as well, um, because Sapphire and Steel was such a, a visual television series mm. we couldn't possibly do that on audio um so i made the decision quite early on well right at the very beginning if i'm honest that it had to all the supporting characters had to have an emotional depth mm. that what we would explore during the story mm. um and which made sapphire and steel's involvement in that actually more interesting mm. uh, than they were on screen mm. so yeah. You mentioned uh, Louise Jameson, mm. and you've written a number of Doctor Who scripts that she's been in. Um, for people who don't know Big Finish's output, uh, as well as doing full cast uh, Doctor Who that's like a radio version of the TV series, they used to do, and still do occasionally, a range called the Companion Chronicles, mm. where it's only a couple of actors, uh, a companion from Doctor Who reprising mm. the part, and then someone else from them to spar against. And one kind of uh, reoccurring theme of the Companion Chronicles, I guess as is implied by its name, is that it gave the Companion stories which had more depth yeah. uh, and really kind of went into their characters. And not only that, um, quite often it would be the Companion at a later point in their life looking back on an untold story from Doctor Who. Mm. And it certainly felt, um, particularly with the ones you did for Louise's character, Leela, that you really went into a lot of depth mm. about the character's emotions that perhaps never really were explored on TV. Yes. And in fact, um, when I first demanded that I write for Leela, <laughs> <laughs> we, we thought it was going to be a one-off because this was in the first batch, mm. the, the first four, I think. Mm. Um, so I wrote a story which she told at the very end of her life. Mm. So at the end of it, uh, I, I, she either died or was about to die, I think. Mm. And then, of course, David said, well, could you write another one? <laughs> <laughs> and then another one and then another one. So I had to keep prolonging her life. <laughs> um, so, yes, that was that was very interesting. Um, it was lovely to watch all those again as research mm. for them. And looking back, I, I always assumed that Leela was a really... Um, 
meticulously crafted character on the telly. Mm. But then I realised watching it, that was because Lou filled Leela with mm. such depth of performance, mm. um, which she does, if you ever see her on stage, she she will never present a cipher. They'll, it, it, everything she does will have depth, mm. which is why I adore her uh, as a person, as an actress as well. Mm. Um, yeah, so it was really interesting seeing that and realising, gosh, mm. there's actually not much there, apart from no. in the first story. She's um, actually quite a wacky character. She's sort of uh, Eliza Doolittle with a Bowie knife in a leather apron yeah, yeah. who then randomly gets married off at the end. Yes, <laughs> you know? yes. So, well, yeah. so given the opportunity to give that character more depth, it must have been quite you know, an interesting experience. Yes, yes, it was great. And to actually go back into her childhood on mm. the planet of the Sever team mm. um, was, was quite an interesting one as well. In fact, I planned, like the Star Wars, I planned yeah. three trilogies. Ah. Um, but unfortunately, they, they chopped the range before I could finish. I think I've, I finished the first trilogy mm. and then started on the second. Indeed. Uh, and then they chopped the range, so I never got to finish my... Oh. No, but I've got all the notes. I know how the story goes. It's really frustrating because the third trilogy, trilogy, like Star Wars, I suppose, was going to be set before the first trilogy. <sighs> so you'd, you'd ex- it, it would explain how she got to be uh-huh. where she was at the beginning, which is tied up yes. at the end of her life by a warrior. Mm. Okay. No chance that you might ever get to do it. I occasionally drop the notes into <laughs> David Richardson, <laughs> but they Big Finish have got such a huge output that sure. it's quite difficult for them to. Uh... Well, but you know, I mean, speaking as a as a fan and a purchaser mm. of Big Finish audios, I I miss the Companion Chronicles as a range because I think there was something unique about that range that told a different kind of Doctor Who story with kind of greater depth in terms of the insight of the characters. So I think it's a shame that they've become uh, a far more occasional release than they used to be. Yes, me too. Yeah, More like audio drama, I think they were. Um, Because I I, I think that the the full range, uh, the full cast ones, Mm. um, can often sound like soundtracks to the telly. Mm. which which isn't my preference. I mm. prefer good old radio drama where you you have a narrator and you get into their heads and yeah and uh, which the companion chronicles could do actually which was great. Mm. Um so at the moment uh Shilling and Sixpence Shilling and Sixpence Investigate is a fairly recent release. Mm. Uh you've done all of these Doctor Who and Jagged Lightfoot and mm-hmm. um Saffron Steel and Tomorrow People, etc., etc., arranges. Um, what's next for you in terms of audio dramas that we might hear, either as actor, director, or writer? Um, well, I've just played a psychopathic <laughs> doctor uh, called Dr. Pinch in a special release for, I think it's called the 8th of March. It's for International oh, Women's okay. Day. Nice. Um, and that's the Paternoster Gang. Ah. which was great fun. Uh, I loved playing a psychopath, but I also loved <laughs> being with them for the day. They're, they're mm. glorious. Um, I've also just finished... I, I do post-production on some of them as well. Mm. I've just finished doing a Blake 7, mm-hmm. which I think has just come out, 
and also just finished post-production on one of the other ones for the 8th of March trilogy, which okay. is uh, an Ace and Benny story. Excellent. Um, so, yes, I'm keeping my hand in on all the yeah. other stuff as well. Indeed. Uh, oh, I look forward to, to listening to them. Mm. Um, I, I do, I mean, I really enjoy Big Finish's uh, Blake 7 uh, releases, but they're becoming increasingly kind of bittersweet to listen to as members of the cast die. Oh, yeah. And yeah. so obviously the number of characters you use um, dwindle. Mm. I mean, hopefully, you know, the, the remaining cast are all in fine health. Um, but, I mean, does that make it difficult in a way to, to do them because you think oh well I would have liked to have had Blake I would have liked to have had Servalan in this story but they're no longer with us I, th- I think what um, I, I have no control over that sure. um, anymore um, I just do the the footsteps and things um, <laughs> but um, I think what they've done is quite clever it's John Ainsworth who's the mm. producer now and he's set it in a period of the show where all of the main cast are actually with us mm. um and which is quite a clever thing only he's recast Josette Simon who mm. doesn't want to do Blake 7 with the brilliant Yasmin Bannerman have you heard her yeah no she's, she's great yeah I, um I directed one of one or two of hers um she's fantastic and really oddly it sound you mm. could be listening to Josette Simon, although she doesn't do an impersonation. She mm. said this isn't an impersonation. Um, yeah. uh, it's extraordinary. So maybe they'll do a bit of that. I don't know. Yeah. Um, when the sad time comes that you need to replace someone. Mm. Um, but yeah, so it, it was awful when uh, Jacqueline mm. Pierce uh, died last year. That was really sad. Although... The stories that uh, John, who was a very close friend of hers, mm, John uh, Hurt, no John um, oh, Ainsworth, okay. right, uh, tells about her last few weeks are quite hysterical. She, the, what I love is that she re- retained her Jacqueline Pierceness right to the end, because <laughs> um, she was incredible, such a, an amazing woman. Yeah. Yeah. So as with the TV series, did she swan into the studio in an evening gown and a martini in her hand? Yes, with a wincy at nighty underneath. <laughs> that was very her. Oh, yeah, she was a darling. Loved Brilliant. her. Um, I suppose, in a way, it would be like asking you to choose your favourite child. But <laughs> is there a range uh, that, that you love working on the most? Or does it depend... You know, I don't know, change from year to year because of the kind of projects you're asked to work on. I think it has to be the Tomorrow People. Okay. Um, Interesting. Which we lost the license for, unfortunately, when they first planned to make mm. the TV series. Um, I have, I, I because I had such a childhood fondness for mm. the concept and for the TV series and for that amazing theme tune. And I got to work with uh, a lot of the old Tomorrow people in the audios. In fact, there are three that we made that we couldn't release. Um, And the plan for that year um, was to reform the team, the telly team, Mm. um, so that we would have... This will mean nothing if you don't know anything about the Tomorrow People. But for me, it's like the Valjon and Pete of the Tomorrow People. Um, again, that will mean nothing to you if you don't know Blue Peter. Um, 
it was um, John, played by Nick Young, and Elizabeth, and Stephen, and Mike were my Tomorrow People lineup, okay. and uh. the the plan for the ones that weren't released were that we were going to reform that four and and carry on. Um, oh. So it's really sad that we didn't get to do that. But well, I have really good memories of it. Okay, cool. Yeah. Well, maybe they'll get the license back one day. Uh, again, I keep texting Jason saying, oh, "Tomorrow, people, would be quite a nice idea, wouldn't it? <laughs> You've got three you haven't released." <laughs> yeah. To be continued. Yeah. Nigel Fairs, thank you very much. Thank you. It's been lovely. Excellent. Nigel Fairs' work on various Big Finish productions, including episodes of Doctor Who and Blake Seven can be found at www.bigfinish.com. Unfortunately, Sapphire and Steel and The Tomorrow People are no longer available to buy from the website, but you might be able to find second-hand copies from other sites. Nigel's original audio drama, Shilling and Sixpence Investigate, is available to download from Big Finish and also from Audible. And as mentioned earlier in the interview, Shilling and Sixpence Investigate is an adaptation of various stories from Nigel's ongoing live murder mystery saga, The Morlington Mysteries. The next live production you can go to of these tongue-in-cheek murder mysteries is taking place at Spa Valley Steam Railway in Tunbridge Wells, with episode 93, The Brown Cliffs of Belching, taking place on February the 23rd from 6pm, and then episode 94, Bob's Your Auntie, taking place a month later on March the 23rd. And you can find more info about all of the Morlington Mysteries by going to 368theatre.com. Audio Dramatics was recorded, edited and introduced by Alex Fitch and is a Panel Waters production. You can find all previous episodes on our blog www.panelborders.wordpress.com and we'll be back in two months' time. To play out, the final clip you'll hear in today's show is an extract from Nigel's first Doctor Who companion chronicle featuring Leela, played by Louise Jameson, in which the character in captivity towards the end of her life remembers an adventure with the fourth Doctor as played on TV by Tom Baker. So as this episode of Audio Dramatic ends, you'll hear the beginning pre-credit sequence of Doctor Who The Companion Chronicles, The Catalyst, by Nigel Fares. Thanks for listening. You interest me, 270G. You dress like a noblewoman, and yet you lack something. Something every one of our guests shows within minutes of walking through that door. Fear. You're not afraid of me. You are right. I do not fear you, and I am not your guest. Maybe not. Speak plainly. I am your prisoner, and this is an interrogation. At the end of it, one of us will be dead. Yes, and I will have the information that I need. (laughs) 